So the question that we have before us this morning is the question that's printed on the slide in front of you, and it's the question, should I have a beer? Now, some of you just woke up. (laughs) Unless you think this is a personal question, we're not going to be serving anything out with the donuts after the service today. I raise the question because I think it's a more relevant question than the question, should I eat meat that has been offered to idols? And that's the question that Paul is wrestling with, with the church in Corinth. Uh, Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, now concerning food offered to idols. Now, where you see that phrase, now concerning, it's a cue to us that Paul now is responding to a question that was put to him by this church. And the question was regarding food that was offered to idols. Now, a little background might be uh, helpful Uh, Corinth as a city was polytheistic, it was a pagan culture, and all over the city were these temples, and the temples were teeming with idols. Uh, This actually is the ruins of a temple in first century Corinth, and, uh, but the city was teeming with these these gods that were pouring out of these idols, or that, that were pouring out of these temples, Zeus, Hermes, Venus. Epaphrodites, which was the goddess of sexuality, Asclepius, who was the goddess of healing, uh, the imperial gods like Augustus, uh, the mystery gods from the east. And the temples were places that the people in the city would go to in order to meet with the gods. And specifically, it would be the place they would go to in order to assuage the anger of the gods and then to call the favor of the gods. And so the gods in the uh, ancient world were rather cranky types, and so oftentimes uh, the gods would get a bit upset with you, or you would think the gods are mad at me, and so you'd have to go and offer up a sacrifice in order to quell sort of the anger of the gods, or you would go there to garner the gods' favor. And so maybe if... uh, you wanted rain for your crops or prosperity for your business or fertility for your wife, you would make an animal sacrifice in order to curry the favor of the gods. And oftentimes what would happen is a portion of your offering would be given directly to the gods. Another portion would be taken home with you and you might eat it, maybe you'd throw a feast. You would tell all of your friends, we just sacrificed a cow and so come over, we've got steaks and tri-tip and brisket, and uh, we'll stop there. But you throw a big party, and then another portion of the offering would then go to sale in the marketplace. And so that left a question for those who now were strict monotheists, those who didn't believe in many gods and idols, but who were committed to the one true and living God. Would it be okay for us to go and purchase the meat that was sacrificed to an idol. Now, this was a rather important question because if you wanted meat in the ancient world, the only kind of meat that was basically on offer in the marketplace was meat that had been previously offered to an idol. And so this was a big question for them. Should I eat meat that was offered to idols? Now, in all my years of pastoral ministry, I have never had anybody ask me that question. And you've never asked it, have you? And why is that? Well, the answer is obvious. It's because we live in post-enlightenment modern America. 
And in our own day and age, you know, we're not, we don't live in a culture and a time and a place with a bunch of idols. And so you're not going down to Whole Foods or Ralph's or whatever and looking at the meat department and questioning, should I buy this piece of meat? It was offered to an idol. I don't know. Pastor, what should I do? You know, you don't do that because this is not an issue that we deal with. But I, w- I have had Christians ask me questions about alcohol. You see, there are actually a number of ethical issues surrounding alcohol, uh, surrounding stuff we eat and we drink in our own day and age. For some of you, of course, alcohol has been a hot-button issue in your family. It was what destroyed your parents' marriage. It was what destroyed your brother's liver. It took someone apart, and you are fearful of the stuff. You think that stuff is, it's the devil's drink. It destroyed my family. And of course, there are other ethical issues, new ethical issues surrounding alcohol and surrounding food in our industrialized food culture that we live in. Uh, We live in a world where there are tons of chemical fertilizers and pesticides that we use over and over again in our crops uh, that we grow. And then we use oftentimes immigrant, migrant labor to come and for very small profit to go and to pick the vegetables that we eat or the grapes that we use to make our wine. And so there's ethical issues surrounding our food and our drink in our own industrialized food era. And then, of course, in a a world where uh, there are so many people who are dying for just lack of bread, it should raise some question for us, how much luxury should we actually indulge in? I mean, a craft beer a nice glass of wine, a bowl of Mother Moo, salty chocolate, ice cream, a trip to Hawaii. These are luxuries. And how much luxury should you actually indulge in in a world where so many people live without necessities? So there's all kinds of ethical issues surrounding this question about alcohol and largely in the larger issue of food in our own culture. And so What I want to do this morning is I want to look at what Paul says in our text, and I want to bring that into conversation with this ethical issue of alcohol and our own consumption of it in our own day and age. So we want to do that today. But before we uh, jump into the text, I just want to give a short history of the church's relationship with alcohol, because Christianity's association with prohibition and abstention is really a recent phenomenon. And so consider these facts. In the European world, one of the most Christian drinks was beer. And during Charlemagne's reign, the church became the exclusive brewer for Europe. When a young woman was to marry, her church would make her a special bridal ale from which we get the term bridal. Uh, The great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, there he is, handsome devil, isn't he? Look at him. The great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, received as part of his annual salary upwards of 250 gallons of wine to be shared with his guests. I should have brought that to the the negotiating table. Just kidding. (laughs) Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, described the entire Reformation with this, with the, with this sentence. He said, Well, I sat and drank beer silently with, with Philip and Amsdorf. God dealt a mighty blow to the papacy. I thought that was funny. <laughs> it's a good quote from Luther. 
Luther's wife, Catherine, was a skilled brewer, and in his love letters to her while they were apart, he often lamented his inability to drink her beer. And then, of course, when the Puritans, our Congregationalist forefathers, landed on Plymouth Rock, the first permanent structure they erected was a brewery. Well, so that's history. (laughs) What about the Bible? Well, let's talk for a minute about the Bible and alcohol. So the Bible's witness on alcohol is really mixed. On the one hand, the Bible clearly says that God's people are not to be marked by drunkenness. We are to be a people who are underneath the control of the presence and the power and the love of God and not any substance. The Proverbs warn about the dangers of alcohol. It says, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And alcohol can make you say and do things that you oftentimes are ashamed of. Anybody here ever found themselves doing and saying something they were ashamed of because of their consumption of alcohol? Why don't you just stand up and share a story? (laughs) The matter was so serious that no priest was to drink while performing duties, and no king could drink while they were judging law. But on the other hand, there are other passages that celebrate and affirm a responsible and God-honoring use of alcohol. And so, for example, some of you might not know that this is in the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, it actually commands Israel to store up a tithe, the 10% of their income, that they would take and they would blow on a giant party in the place that God would determine. And so God would have this great week of celebration, a great festival where all of God's people would gather together. And when they did, in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 29, he commands the people to take their money and to blow it on whatever they want, whatever food, and it says, quote, spend it on whatever strong drink and wine you want. When the ancient prophets looked for a metaphor to describe the kingly joy that would be brought by the messianic king, They describe the kingdom of God as a feast with abundant and free-flowing wine. And of course, for his inaugural miracle, Jesus doesn't take water and make it into better water. He takes wine, or he takes water and he turns it into wine. And not just wine, but really, really good wine. This is not two-buck chuck. This is like the good stuff. It is Galilean reserve. And not just wine, but gallons and gallons and gallons of wine. And when Jesus, of course, chose symbols that would mark his own life and death for his followers, he draws upon both bread and wine. And so on the one hand, the Bible affirms and celebrates a God-honoring use of alcohol, but on the other hand, it warns against its abuses. And of course, in our own day and age, we do need to think about the ethical issues surrounding our industrial food system, surrounding our choices, surrounding our own consumption of goods and services and food and alcohol and so on and so forth. And and there's a lot of tensions and ethical gray areas for us. And so it leaves us in this place of tension. And that's precisely where the church in Corinth found themselves. They were in tension when it came to living out their faith in the culture that they inhabited. And there were new issues that were not directly addressed in previous portions for these pagans living in the city. And so Paul writes and he takes the the gospel and he applies a gospel framework to their own ethical tension. Now let me just say this. This morning we want to do the same thing. 
We want to take the ethical framework that Paul provides for us in this text and apply it in the same way that he's doing in this text to our own issue regarding alcohol and and food consumption really at a larger level. But I suspect that there's probably two different kinds of people in this room this morning. I suspect that there are some of you for whom uh, there are no ethical tensions that you wrestle with in life. And the reason is, is because you already got it all figured out. Or maybe, more honestly, you just don't really care. And so maybe you have a grown son or daughter and they come to you and all of a sudden they're all up in arms because they just watched a food documentary about some ethical issues regarding the treatment of animals and they're like, we have this big issue. And you're like, oh, come on. And you kind of roll your eyes at the ethical dilemmas that they themselves are wrestling with. And you just think, there's no more questions we need to wrestle with. Don't bother me with hard questions. I don't want to think about that. Uh, But there are others in here this morning who you actually are there. Like, you do struggle. You wrestle with ethical issues when it comes to your own life. There are some gray areas, and you want direction. Well, this was the church in Corinth, and they looked to Paul for direction. He provides it in this text. And so if you are in that first camp this morning, I just want to say, I don't got anything for you. Like, if you all got it figured out already when you walked in, and you're not wrestling with any issues, and you don't really care, like, I don't have anything for you this morning, probably not next week or the week after that either, because Paul is going to be wrestling with these ethical issues. But if you are in a place where you want some guidance from a luminary, from somebody who is sharp and who is close to God and who gives us some light on our own ethical dilemmas, it's here. But we got to do some work, okay? Okay. You say, well, that was an awfully long introduction if we still got to do some work. I know, I know. But what I want you to see in our text are three aspects of his ethical framework, three, uh, three things that Paul brings to bear on this question of food offered to idols and for us, for the Christian in alcohol. Three frames that we can use as a lens to look at this ethical issue. And the first frame he provides for us, or that I want you to see, is the frame of gratitude. And so Paul is dealing with this issue during chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And so what I want to do is invite you to go with me all the way to the very end of this section in chapter 10, verse 25. And in some ways, this is kind of the long and the short of it. They're asking, should we eat meat that has been offered to idols? Is it okay for us to consume this meat? Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. He says, you're fine. You're okay. Go ahead and partake the meats. Four, why? Verse 26, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Those animals... Those crops, that stuff doesn't ultimately belong to those idols in the temples. It ultimately belongs to God. Everything that we have comes out of his own fullness. And so he says in verse 27, and so if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. So he says, look, whether you're buying it in the marketplace or you're eating at your neighbor's house, go ahead and eat. Eat the hamburger. Eat the tri-tip. Take the the pulled pork. Eat the carnitas tacos. (laughs) 
I know, it's too close to lunch for that, yes. But he does give a caveat. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. He says, look, if you're eating with somebody and they're like, you know, I just offered this to Zeus. I didn't know you were a worshiper of Zeus. You're like, whoa, whoa, I'm not going to eat this. Thank you very much. I'm not a worshiper of Zeus. I'm a worshiper of the one true and living God. But he says in verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? But if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. And then look what he says in verse 31. He says, look, go ahead and eat the meat that you buy in the art marketplace. Go ahead and eat the meat over at your neighbor's house. But do it in this way, verse 31. He says, whether you eat or drink... Whether you're eating meat in the marketplace or you're drinking a glass of Cabernet, he says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But what does that mean? How do you eat and drink to the glory of God? Well, I guess one answer to that question is by eating and drinking in a way that's responsible, by not being a glutton or a drunk and getting stupid. Okay, so eat and drink responsibly. But I think it also probably could mean to eat and drink in a way where you're not indulging yourself while you're blind to the needs of others. There are way too many needs in this world for us to simply blow all of our our abundance on ourselves and our friends. And so you can eat and drink in a way that honors God and glorifies God if while you're enjoying his goodness, you do it with a mind to your neighbor who is in need. But I want you to see in our text what Paul means by that, because he tells us. He says, eat and drink to the glory of God. What do you mean? Well, he says in the verse prior, verse 30, he says, if I partake with thankfulness, how do you eat and drink to the glory of God? It is when you eat and drink with a heart full of gratitude to God. And why would you be grateful to God? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything that we have comes to us as a gift from God's hand. You know, you think back in the garden, and I, I, I love this, this passage where it describes how God creates all of these trees in the garden, and they're not just good for food. They don't just meet practical necessities, but the food in the garden is also a delight to the eyes. Why did it have to be so delightful to the eyes? Was it not just for our pleasure? Was it not just that God was being gratuitous, just pouring out his goodness and grace on humanity in the creation around us? And he was saying, look, go and enjoy my abundance. Enjoy my goodness. But do so with the heart of gratitude, giving God thanks. It's interesting, you know, in the first century, Jews would oftentimes quote this verse. It's Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof every time they would eat their meals together. And they would couple that with their blessings. And they had this blessing that they would speak over their wine. They would say, Baruch, Atah, Adonai, Elohenu, Malach HaOlam, Bori, Pri, Hagafen, which is translated, blessed are you, Lord of the universe, who gives us the fruit of the vine. And do you notice that in response to this goodness, they turn and they bless God. 
I always think that it's funny around our Christian tables, we oftentimes ask God to bless the food. And so we usually take our nasty meal that we put, you know, our double-double and french fries, and we're like, God, just bless this thing. And what are we asking in that moment? God, just perform jujitsu on this uh, Big Mac and french fries and turn it into leafy, green, nutrient-dense, you know, vegetables. You don't bless the food, you bless God for the food. God is the one who, from whose abundance all of this has come. You know, there, there's this uh, saying that the Jews recite over the, the Passover meal, and it's the phrase, dayenu. And this word, dayenu, it means it would have been enough. And they say this, they say, had God just delivered us from the land of Egypt, but not brought us to Mount Sinai, dayenu, it would have been enough. Had God brought us to Mount Sinai, but did not give us the law, dayenu, it would have been enough. Had God given us the law but didn't take us into the land of promise, Dayenu, it would have been enough. But thanks be to God, he has given us all of these blessings and so much more. In a culture of entitlement, the Jews speak that word, Dayenu. It would have been enough. God, you have given me so much. And so Paul says, you eat and you drink to the glory of God. When you eat and drink full of gratitude, excising all bits of entitlement from your heart and your life, demanding, but being cognizant that when you eat your meals, when you drink your wine, when you, what, whatever, like you are, you are sharing in food that you yourself often had no role in the overall production. There were others and their strength was given to them by God, and the earth that they tilled was God's earth, and the crops that they brought, these are all God's. It all comes from the hand of God, and so we eat with gratitude. So Paul says, look, eat and drink to the glory of God. Eat with gratitude. So number one, as you think about kind of like engaging with alcohol or whatever, is there, is there, is there a God-honoring, God-glorifying gratitude for all of the gifts in creation that we receive? But the second frame that Paul gives us to think through is not gratitude, but secondly, it's the frame of faithfulness. Now go back to chapter 8, because it looks like Paul totally shifts gears here. And so look down at your, your Bibles Paul actually is going to call the church there to a faithful use of food and really a faithful use for us of of alcohol and food and of all of the the good gifts in God's creation. Look at what it says in verse 1. He says again, now concerning food offered to idols, we know. Now here he's probably quoting from their letter. In their letter, they reported to Paul, those who were in the know, They reported to Paul, look, we all possess knowledge. And Paul responds, he's like, yeah, well, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You ever know know somebody who is real smart, but a real jerk? Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Here, the Corinthians, or there was a subset in the church in Corinth who prided themselves on the fact that they could eat meat and they participated and they were engaged. And, you know, and Paul's like, you think 
you know so much. But God is not interested in your knowledge. He's interested in your love. What matters to God when it comes to our ethical questions and dilemmas and tensions is not that we can win an argument or fight a fight or prove that we're right and they're wrong. What matters ultimately to God is love. It's not that God is against knowledge. It's just that knowledge has always been a means to a greater end, and the greater end is love. Hold on to that, because we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 4. Paul essentially says in verse 4, well, here's my take on it. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, you don't want to know what I think? Here it is. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul is alluding in this text back to the very heart of the Jewish confession of faith, which was called the Shema. Can we all say that together? The Shema. And the Shema was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It was the great confession that there is only one God who is the ground of all existence. And now Paul works into the confession of monotheism, the person of Jesus. He says there is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus. In other words, he, enters into the, he, he introduces into the one God a plurality of persons, which is the uh, doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he says, yes, they're they're not a bunch of idols, and we don't have to worry about all of these different gods that are running around. And one of the things that scholars who study the history of the church have noticed is that Christianity was responsible for a lot of demythologizing. In other words, a lot of the pagan peoples were running around fearful of the gods. You know, they're crazy. We have to appease them, or we have to call their favor. And Christianity says, all of that is over. Christ is has defeated all of the powers of darkness. You are not enslaved to them. You need not fear them any longer. They have been exposed for the false things that they are, and they have been brought low, and God has defeated them so that you can enter into a new freedom. But Paul says in verse 7, not all possess this knowledge. This is a young church, and there are a lot of young believers who came out of paganism, And because they had been so steeped in this worldview, I mean, you can imagine if you grew up your entire life, and some of you have grown up your entire life with all kinds of false stories in your head, it takes a long time to get those false stories out, doesn't it? And so too, Paul says, look, there are a lot of pagans in your midst, or pagan converts to Christianity, and he says they still are kind of dealing with their old fears from the idols and the temples and stuff. And so he's like, if they see you going and participating and eating in food offered to idols, they actually may find themselves back eating the meat offered to idols, going to these idol temples, and ultimately having their entire faith in Christ destroyed because they go back underneath their fearful enslavement to these idolatrous powers. Look at how he puts it. He says, verse 7, but some, though through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol 
and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, and if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ has died. Now stop. Doesn't it seem like Paul has kind of a a different take here in chapter 8 than he did in chapter 9? Chapter 9, he's like, go ahead and eat don't worry about your conscience. Go ahead and eat food that was offered to idols that you're partaking of in the marketplace, that you're at your friend's house. But here he says, you need to guard your conscience and don't eat the meat. So what is it, Paul? Do we eat the meat? Do we not eat the meat? And the answer is, it depends. And here, what it depends on is the context for the eating. You say, what do you mean? Well, in chapter 10, he's referring to eating that happens in a a home or in the marketplace. Here, if you notice down in verse 10, he's talking about an eating that happens in an idol's temple. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in where? Look at what it says in your Bibles. In a, this is where you participate, this is group participation, in an idol's temple, He's saying, look, where you participate matters. You see, in the first century, uh, temples were more than just a temple where you went to worship. They were also the restaurants of the ancient world. And so if you had some business colleagues and some partners that you needed to connect with, you would do social networking in a dining hall in a temple. And you know what kind of food you'd be served? It would be the meat that had been offered to idols. But it wasn't as benign as all of that because in these temples, there was also some racy, kind of immoral, exploitative activity. They would oftentimes bring in young women or young men who were slaves, and they would meet some just desires that were in that room, and it was just an ugly, ugly thing. And so Paul's like, look, you are priding your... We can go eat in these meals, in these dining halls. And Paul's like saying, you need to be careful because a good thing, naming eating meat, can become a bad thing if it's in the wrong context or setting. And he actually warns this church a little bit later in in chapter 10. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, look, therefore, if anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You know, imagine these two different scenarios. In one scenario, Jesus is around the table and he breaks bread and he shares wine with his disciples. And now now another scenario There's a man who's sitting alone in a dark room, depressed, draining his second bottle of wine. And do you see the difference between those two? One is drinking to remember, and the other is drinking to forget. And there's a lot of people in our own culture who they use alcohol, they use pain medications, they can use sugar and overeating or not eating and bulimia and anorexia and food stuff in order to cope with deep 
issues in their own life. In other words, what the ancient pagans went to the temples to do, namely deal with their deepest fears and anxieties and problems with the gods there, we use our own little things to deal with our issues. Do you see what I'm saying? And so a good thing can become a bad thing when it actually becomes an idolatrous and a controlling thing in your life. And so I think for those in this room who do share an alcohol, I think you need to ask about the context. Are you in context that actually promote immorality and exploitation of other people? Are you using alcohol to cope? Do you think about it throughout the day? Do you wait to get home to get that drink and to unwind and finally relax? Are you fearful if you can't get the next drink? Are you using alcohol to cope with your anxieties and your fears and your problems? And if so, you're being drawn away from your devotion to Jesus. And so the second frame that he invites us to consider this issue through is through the frame of faithfulness. But the final frame that I want you to see And this is really Paul's chief concern in the whole thing. It's really his chief concern in ethics. His primary concern about this group in Corinth that's out going and participating and eating in these meals and in sharing in these idol temples, his primary concern that he wants them to have is the effect they're going to have on those around them. Look at how he puts it in chapter 8, verse 12. He says, and so by your knowledge... This weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. The sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, notice what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not actually referring to people who are offended by your quote-unquote Christian liberty. You know, you might feel like you have a liberty to go out and get a tattoo, and somebody in church says, your tattoo offends me. I don't like your tattoo. I don't like your hat you wore to church. I don't like, I don't like, I don't like, I'm offended. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about somebody as a result of your behavior actually being led into a destructive, self-destroying pattern. Are you with me? Nor is he talking here about allowing your own self to be held hostage to the opinions of others so that you, don't, you refrain from engaging in certain behaviors when you're around certain people, not because you think you're going to cause them to go into sin, but because you're actually afraid of what they think. Paul says, why should my own behavior be bound by you? You know, like, don't let your little hang-ups, enslave other people. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is actually your actions lead other people into a self-destructive place, and your actions themselves are done without a nod to the needs of others around you. And so he tells us the primary frame through which we examine our ethical dilemmas is through this frame of love. Or put it like this. What on earth would ever put you in a place where you would give up meat? I gave up meat for a bit of time during Lent this year. It was terrible. <laughs> Some of you, like salt and fat, like you just can't live without it. That stuff is like, it's like your, um, it's your happy place. What is it that caused Paul to say, look, 
I will never eat meat again. It was his concern for his neighbor. Do you see that in verse 13? He says, if my actions hurt someone else, then I will gladly give up my right in order to serve the needs of others. And perhaps we should ask more questions about our own actions and their effects on other people. You might have a friend or a loved one who is an alcoholic, and it's not so much that when you're with them and you have a beer and they don't, that they uh, are going to somehow start drinking again. But drinking is a communal thing. Eating is a communal thing. And in some way, that's exclusive of one another. What about your neighbor? What about your brother? And sometimes our actions actually do lead people into dark places. Sometimes our actions, that our indulgences, our luxuries, they can never be, we can never splurge on ourselves unless there is an actual real pattern in our life of caring for those in need around us. Else we're just indulging self without loving our neighbor. So Paul is inviting us to kind of take our ethical dilemmas and to put them through these three frames. Number one, through the frame of gratitude. Number two, through the frame of faithfulness. And thirdly and finally, through the frame of love. Now, why love? Why is that the primary thing that stands at the heart of Christian ethics? Well, because the God we meet in the gospel is preeminently the God who took all of his rights and privileges and laid them aside so that you and I might experience healing and redemption and restoration. And so all of Christian ethics, if it's genuinely Christian, will be primarily shaped by the way of God we meet in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, be imitators of God as dear children. It's appropriate that we close our service today at the Lord's table because it is in this particular practice, with the bread and with the cup, that once again we rehearse the reality that our own life is nourished and sustained in the love of God. The bread and the cup, historically by the church, has been called the Eucharist, which means the meal of thanksgiving. And it is here in this meal that we are reminded of God's utter faithfulness in Jesus Christ to his people. And when we meet God's faithfulness and his love in Jesus, our primary response as a church is to give thanks and blessing to God. Amen?